Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Stand, book three, chapters 61 to 67. Let's start the show. This whole section of the book is on the other side of the Rockies, and things are moving quickly. The judge is discovered and quickly killed, but Flag isn't happy about it. Dana Jurgens, posing as Lloyd Henry's girlfriend, is discovered to be a spy. But before she is forced to spill who the third spy might be, she kills herself, and Flag isn't happy about it. Tom starts to head back to Boulder before he is found out, and Flag isn't happy about it. Harold has an accident and dies, and Flag claims Nadine as his own, impregnating her and driving her mad. But when Flag learns of Tom's escape, he kills her in a fit of rage and isn't happy about it. Finally, the trash can man continues his unique brand of chaos that only escalates when he's made fun of, and Flag isn't happy about it. I'm picking up on a little bit of a trend there, Sean. Yeah. Are you trying to say that Flag's kind of losing control here? I think so. Uh, Jay, up until this point, Flag has really been presented as this big bad, right? Yeah. Um, we've, we just spent the last however many chapters in Boulder, and with the bombing of the committee and Mother Abigail's death, everyone in Boulder is now speaking his name out loud and saying, we're concerned about Randall Flag. He's the bad guy. He's the enemy. Uh, he's caused these deaths and we don't know what's happening and what's going to happen to our new society. And so in our minds, what we've seen of flag so far and, and what we've heard about from Boulder, we're thinking, uh Oh, this guy's the, the real deal. Like he's trouble. And then all of a sudden in these chapters, we see a different flag than what we've been presented with one who, while still powerful, while still holding his minions under a, lock and key and, and expecting total obedience is somebody who's not quite all together there and is, is losing that hold. When you say lock and key, do you mean eye and key? Oh, maybe I do. Maybe I do. Yeah, I gotta say, as intimidating and scary and, I don't know, like forward seeing as Flag is presented early in the book, this character who knows everything that's going on and orchestrates massive cons and 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 makes arrangements for things to happen at a scale that is almost unbelievable at this point in the story he's kind of an idiot <laughs> i mean yeah. quite frankly he's an idiot I, I don't know if it's hubris like does he think that he's just that much more powerful or stronger or or smarter than everybody else and so he can just laugh it all off and and still achieve his ends I don't know what it is, but he has messed up really big yep. in those things that you just recounted in the intro. That just brings his, like all of his plans almost to a halt. He, he's almost already defeated. Yeah, I don't know if he's quite at that point yet, but he's almost planting the seeds of his own defeat, which is really what happens in the eyes of the dragon, right? Yeah. Like he is ultimately responsible for his downfall. Um, and whether or not that's going to be the case in this book, we don't know at this point, but he is at least opening the door for that opportunity for something to happen. 
And it's really due to his both obsessions with certain things, like he wants to catch all these spies, and his trust in people who probably shouldn't be left to carry out those plans. Yeah. He is both a micromanaging person, like he wants to know all these details and he's giving, you know, these people who are spread out across his his lands specific orders and he wants them followed to the letter. But at the same time, as we see later with Lloyd, not totally focused on things he should be focused on um, when it comes to what's happening with Trash Can Man at the, at the air base where they're preparing stuff. So he he doesn't have that proper balance, I think. Yeah. Although I will say, like, one of the examples of Flag kind of being an idiot is also my favorite scene in the book. Ooh. It's the scene when uh, the judge is in the hotel room and there's the crow tapping at his window. Mm. And the judge gets this flash of intuition that that crow is Flag. Yeah. It's not just Flag looking through the eyes of a crow spying on me. It actually is Flag. Flag has transformed himself into this crow. And here I am with a rifle in my lap and a crow 10 feet away in a windowsill. Like, I can kill him right now. I can stop this crazy, evil creature right now with just one bullet. Yep. And when the judge swings the rifle at at the crow in the window and the crow has like, I, I just picture this, this like boggling eyes coming out like, oh shit, <laughs> he nailed me. I love that moment. I, I love the flash of intuition. I love how the judge just kind of puts the whole thing together and it is all all intuited, right? He doesn't have any evidence of this. He's not even aware before this moment that Flag has this power, right? but he knows he has magic and it all just kind of makes sense. And why not? Like, just try. Even if he's wrong, he's, all right, he's killing an innocent crow, right? <laughs> right. No big loss. It's not, yeah, it's, it's worth the risk, I guess. Um, of course, the judge fails because he forgot in his haste to take the safety off the rifle. But the fact that Flag put himself in this predicament is just yeah. so foolish. If he really is vulnerable, if he is as fragile as a bird when he becomes a crow, he should never come within striking distance of an enemy. Right. And yet there he is like, ha ha, tapping on the glass. Isn't that annoying? Aren't I freaking you out? Tap, yep. tap, tap. And then, oh shit, he's got a gun, right? Like, what are you doing, Flag? How can you win if you are this dumb all the time? Yeah, it, it is a good scene. And unfortunately, like you said, not only does it end with the judge not able to take care of the crow, but shortly thereafter, the judge is found out and killed, although not the way that Flag wants it to be. And then we get this other, what I think is a pretty cool scene is when we finally see this power of Flag turning from the crow into his form as Randall Flag mm -hmm. as he comes to attack the guy who, who accidentally killed the judge or blew his face off un, un, unintentionally. And there's even the great picture that's in the expanded book, the Wrightson picture of a behind camera view of Flag with the feathers coming out of his head. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's pretty nifty. Yeah. And I remember um, there was a scene in the, the TV miniseries when Jamie Sheridan's mullet wig had feathers <laughs> woven into it to kind of show that he was sort of midway through transforming from man to bird and or bird to man. Yeah. So we see these new powers that Flag seems to have as he transforms back and forth between crows and everything else. But like in other ways, his powers are diminishing. Um, he he says things like sometimes the eye fell mysteriously blind because he's sort of looking over and trying to figure out where the spies are. And he, you know, he he's already found the judge and he knows what he's 
driving and where he's going to be and has people look out and he figures out about Dana, but elsewhere he can't find the third spot. He knows one exists, but his, his mind has gone blind. And then later on, he says things like uh, he didn't like the way things were going and his thoughts chased each other like weasels in the dark. And so where we had seen Flag as being all powerful, we now see for whatever reason, and we can make guesses as to why his powers are diminishing in some way or, or not working the way he thinks they should. Um, and I wonder if part of it is linked to the fact that Mother Abigail has died. Hmm. And it's almost sort of like a balance in the force, like our Sith uh, Jedi type of thing. Like, hey, the universe, because Mother Abigail's power is no longer there, maybe Flag's losing some as well. The one other thing I wanted to point out about his loss of powers and losing control is that when he is in the desert with Nadine, mm-hmm. he wakes up in the middle of the night because he feels something passing him and he gets this this fear almost, right? Like, what, yeah. what was that? There's something odd about this. And it's Tom, right? As Tom's traveling through the night back to Boulder. I mean, he's unaware of what it was, but it, it sort of creeps him out and gives him goose flesh. And it made me think of that earlier scene with Larry when Larry wakes up in the middle of the night because Flag's nearby and he has this horrible feeling as 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 flags passing and it's i just think it's a nice little twist that flag feels that as well just from the other side well we talked about how flag approaches most of the main characters who end up going to boulder and actually has like sort of a devil tempting jesus kind of moment with nick right to tempt him to being evil right but when flag approaches larry that night he doesn't speak to larry in the dream he doesn't connect to him he doesn't confront him in in the real world or anything he just kind of walks up to larry and seems to i kind of guess that maybe flag sensed something in larry that there was something implacable about larry that that there was something that flag couldn't overcome couldn't trick couldn't tempt and that made larry powerful and something that flag feared so flag kind of got as close as he dared and then walked away and that made Larry seem even more special to this cause than Nick. Mm. And in a way, Tom Cullen seems to be just like Larry, right? I don't think anybody except Tom could have passed Flag on the side of the road that close and not get caught by Flag. Totally agree. Except for Tom, right? I totally agree. There's something special about Tom, just like there's something special about Larry that Flag just does not have dominion over. And that is the reason why Flag fears them, I think. And that is the reason why Flag wants them to be destroyed, not just defeated. And it's also a little bit like how Roland is like the special adversary for Flag mm. in the Dark Tower. Flag seems to be able to just do whatever he wants to whomever he wants and come and go as he pleases. But if the gunslinger points one of his ancient pistols at Flag and pulls the trigger, Flag will die. He seems to sense this. There's something about the gunslinger that is special. It's his lineage. It's the magic of his guns. There's something special there with that adversary. And uh, so so Tom and Larry are, are in that pantheon of true powerful enemies of Flag. Yes, yes, agreed. So whereas Flag has been set up as this powerful enemy and, and sort of pure evil, and there's really no sense of good in him, because we now have characters who are in Vegas from the perspective of boulderites we get to see sort of the banality of evil that exists in vegas we've gotten hints of it before when we were there you know when we saw that one guy gets caught using drugs and he gets crucified and everyone sort of goes along with it but here we get to see it from a different perspective and first it's from dana mm-hmm. she's sort of 
integrated within the community and has a job and is close to Lloyd. And she says she thought that Vegas had a rather large proportion of stupids than the zone, but none of them wore fangs and they didn't turn into bats at moonrise. They were also people who worked much harder than she remembered the people in the zone working. And, you know, she actually likes some of them and doesn't want bad things to happen to them. But she realizes like, but these aren't really good people and they seem sort of stupid and some of them are really, you know, sort of lame. And when she gets found out, she sort of admits this, right? Because they Lloyd's upset, obviously, because he feels personally betrayed. But like the rest of them, she like points at her girlfriend, the girlfriend that she had and, and the other guys. And she's like, you guys are all like Germany in 1938. Oh, the Nazis, they're charming people. And then she specifically calls out Lloyd. She says, remember your master's voice. He's your dog god. Isn't that right? Which is a clever little play for those of you who might remember that uh, his master's voice record player ad where the dog is like listening to the record player. Oh, like the RCA symbol? Yeah, the RCA one. Yeah, because the tagline is there, his master's voice, because the dog hears it. That's one that's not going to age well. Like, I barely should remember that. You know, you and I barely remember it. Uh, but Dana does. Back from um, when we used to buy CDs. Yeah. And records. That and stands vinyl. for compact disc listeners. <laughs> and she finally says what I think we're all thinking. She says, maybe he sells fear because he's got nothing else to sell. And that's really, in Dana's mind, the difference between Boulder and Vegas. Vegas is this banal evil that's just sort of built on flag saying, do this, do this, do this, not because anyone wants to do anything in particular, but just because they're scared. And the only thing that they're building is weapons and destruction so they can wipe out the others who they don't even know. Dana at least offers a little bit of humanity and says, hey, some of these people are good. They work hard. They might be stupid and a little bit evil, but eh, that's it. It's really flag that, that's causing all of this. Yeah. I mean, they, they work hard because it seems that if they don't do things that please flag, they will be punished severely. Yeah. I mean, to Dana's point, the banality of this is kind of the thing that makes the whole thing just feel lame for flag. The people who make up his team, his side of, of this conflict or this looming conflict, their hearts aren't in it at best. Right. They're just scared of making the boss angry. And then there are people who are just like being manipulated or lied to or or not quite smart enough to pick up on the fact that this isn't this isn't on the up and up. But the that banality part of it, 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 it also feels like uh, I drew like a like a, a meter the other day when I when we were talking about this, that like, you know, on yes. the left side is evil and on the right side is good. And right in the middle is like, you know, the dividing line. And I think, you know, not everybody who is on the, the good side went to Boulder and not everybody who's evil went to Vegas. But if you're in Vegas and you're only the tiniest bit on the evil side, Flag can make use of you. Flag can manipulate you. Flag can can achieve his ends with you and need you to to achieve those ends. But if that same person had gone to Boulder, they would have been just fine. Yeah. It's not like they're just like, oh no, you're a bad person. You have to leave. Right. It's the people like Harold who went to Boulder who left because he couldn't find a way to fit. Mm. And other people did leave. I don't know it it just feels like it's easier for Flag to take advantage of somebody who's a little bit on the evil side rather than the other way around. So, you know, despite Dana's proud observation of this and calling people out, it still doesn't end well for her 
and Flag's able to to grab her and 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 kill her. But I do like along with this right before she she dies and gives up. She says they're coming and they'll kill you like a chicken stealing weasel. More weasel imagery here. Yeah. And this just sort of builds up on on what's happening with Flag, right? Like he's not all powerful and he's starting to question what happens especially when Dana doesn't give up Tom even though she's seen him and realizes he's probably the third spy and she's able to kill herself before before Flag could get that out of her. And that evil just seems lessened by this, right? Yeah. Flag doesn't seem so evil all of a sudden because she can get away, Tom can get away, uh, what he does with the judge doesn't happen, and he just doesn't seem very strong anymore, and, and his evil just sort of seems lame. And at some point they say the effective half-life of evil is always relatively short, hmm. and I sort of see it waning here. It's an interesting statement. I wonder if it flies in the face of the idea that I expressed in a previous episode where the bad guys always seem to have an advantage over the good guys because the good guys need to follow the rules. Otherwise, they're not good anymore. Mm. Whereas the bad guys can do absolutely anything because they're already the bad guys. So it makes it easier for the bad guys to achieve their ends because they can justify it any way they wish. But if the effective half-life of evil is short, then maybe that means that evil just doesn't tend to win. Yeah, maybe not. It reminds me, this is going to be an odd analogy, but I knew somebody who worked at, do you remember the restaurant Dick's Last Resort? It was a chain of restaurants where the waitresses were purposely mean to you. That was the gimmick. Uh, they would come and be rude and mean and ah, ha, ha, we're all having a good time because they're mean. And I knew one of the waitresses there and we went to the restaurant once and she's like, this is just so hard. Like, it's not, it's not easy being mean to people and, and, and keeping up this act is not great. Like, it's easier to either be good or to just be indifferent, but like to be actively mean to people is hard. And so I wonder if that's part of it too. Like if you're really evil, yeah, maybe. But like, if you're just sort of like, as you put it on that scale where you're just sort of in the middle there, like it's probably a little bit easier to just be good. Like smile every once in a while. Don't be an asshole. Uh You know? Yeah. I guess it is easier to be good than, than evil. Like you got to work to be evil, right? Yeah. I, I think that that's trying what I'm getting at. Now, it's hard to create stuff, which is what we talked about in that last episode, right? Like, it's hard for the people in Boulder to create, and it's easy to destroy, but it's easy to be good, too. I think that that's a good segue into our next topic, Jay, which is really the importance of love here. I, I start to think that this is maybe one of the big themes that, that King's pulling through. Mm. And I had mentioned about how Dana said, you know, maybe he sells fear because he's got nothing else to sell, and that it almost seems like you know, if some of these characters were given a little bit more love at some point or understood love, that things would be better. Um, and you mentioned Harold before as being that complex character. Yeah. And it does seem like one of Harold's problems is his, he wants to be loved in some way and appreciated. And he's not. And that's one of the things that sort of turns him to do the things that he does. Uh, his jealousy of, of Stu and, and Franny and his desire for Nadine and his desire to be respected is either a writer or a person with ideas or whatever. But like all that's about like, I just want to be liked and loved in some way. And he's not. Yeah. To build on that and to build on what Dana said about selling fear, uh, if Flag had the ability to wield anything besides hate and fear, he'd be far more formidable. And this is a weakness that we've seen in, in his character in The Dark Tower. We've seen it here. We've seen it in Eyes of the Dragon. All he seems to know how to do is hurt people or scare people to get what he wants. Mm. And yeah, people do respond to those things, 
but they're only a tiny sliver of what can motivate a person to do something. And it's the weakest thing that can motivate them. If you can inspire loyalty, if you can inspire love, if you can inspire empathy in somebody, they will follow you into fire. But if you tell them that I'll kill you unless you jump into fire, then they'll say, sounds like you're telling me I'm dying either way, pal. Right. Flag's problem is that these are the only tools he has and they're they're not powerful tools. Yep. And his two main lieutenants maybe are Lloyd and Lloyd starts to question it in this section. Like mm-hmm. he realizes that Flag is keeping information from him and not treating him as as somebody who can be trusted with that information and who's hiding stuff from him and you know not telling him everything that's going on and Lloyd starts to question, "Wait, wait a minute. Why am I doing this?" And because he's acting like that, He's not as powerful as I thought, and I'm a little wary of him. And then also Trash Can Man, right, who famously walks into Las Vegas saying, you know, my life for you, my life for you. And because he's not getting that protection necessarily from Flag or that love, he's getting teased by people at the base. And that's what causes him to go on his little chaotic spree of like blowing up airplanes and blowing up trucks and causing the destruction of the pilots and and his plans. And like, these are two people who would be very loyal to Flag, but because they're not getting, and I don't want to call it love, but like that loyalty and respect, mm-hmm. they're questioning their, their place in the society. Yeah. And kind of the flip side of that is like Nadine. Mm. Nadine has, in one way or another, for far longer than the time covered in this book, like before the plague, she has been in some way aware of Flag and has saved her virginity for him. And was quite willing to become his partner, right? Right. But Flag is incapable of having a partner. He's incapable of actually joining forces with somebody. All he's capable of is domination and ownership and destruction. Mm. So Nadine thinks she's walking into a relationship. Flag, nope. Nope. The reality of this is far darker. I mean, Flag rapes her. Flag thinks of her as the incubator for his unborn child. Flag's union with her leads to Nadine's utter madness and then ultimately her murder because in a flash of rage, he kills the, the very woman who's carrying his child. The thing that he put above all other things, like the fact that he was going to have a son, you know, it's like the devil's spawn kind of thing. Like the devil's highest achievement is to have offspring, right? Right. And he can't even do that. All he needed to do was show Nadine just a smidge more of caring and she would have been by his side and loyal to him, but he couldn't even do that. I mean, this goes back to our first topic about Flags being an idiot and losing control. Right. Like, come on, dude. How out of touch are you with how people work? It's just awful. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting stuff happening with Flag here. Um I think it was, you just pointed out that it seems like one of Flag's big desires is to have some sort of child, maybe like a, a demon child of his own. Mm. That's getting really close to being a Dark Tower thinny, Jay. Why don't you kick us off, Sean? We actually have a lot in this section, probably because we spent so much time talking about Flag. Um but but this is a great line from your, your favorite scene, Jay, uh, from the judge's perspective. And it came to him with a dreamy, testicle-shriveling certainty that this was the dark man, his soul, 
his ka somehow projected into this rain-drenched, grinning crow that was looking in at him, checking up on him. Ka. Yep. Yeah. Now, they're using it here in the sense of soul, but obviously ka is something very important in the Dark Tower. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, when I saw the word ka, I almost, like, dropped my iPad. <laughs> and like, well, what? I don't remember there being ka like, as a word and an idea in, in the stand, but man, yeah. That's as, about as uh, tight a connection as it gets. Yep. So there's a line. Randall Flagg sat beside the fire, moodily cooking carcass of a small rabbit. He turned it steadily on the crude rotisserie he had made, watching it sizzle and grease into the fire. This line could just as easily have been in The Gunslinger. Absolutely. I, I didn't go back and look for it, but King could have just copied it out of this book into there. <laughs> this is... Right. This is basically text from the gunslinger. Yep. We just need an actual gunslinger to come along a little bit later and know that, hey, Randall Flagg was here. Yeah. So we mentioned how Flagg turned from a crow into a man, and Dana starts to hear myths that go around about Flagg when she's in Vegas. You heard stories about him. The beginning of myth, she had heard he was a shape changer, a werewolf. And later on, she hears that he's a skin turner. And so Flag is basically the skin man from the wind through the keyhole, right? He's a shapeshifter. Yeah. Pretty nifty. Yep. I thought it was pretty cool that Tom thought of his Vegas apartment as a way station. Ah. Uh, if only he had a skull embedded in the walls, the jawbone of something. Mm -hmm. um, we had mentioned before about Flag having the feeling when Tom walks by it. It, it's very much like his dream in the eyes of the dragon that he has when he's worried about what's coming. Flag awoke in the latter part of the night and sat up in his bedroll, confused and afraid. Afraid in the instinctive, unknowing way that an animal is afraid. A predator who senses that he himself may be stalked. Had it been a dream? A vision? They're coming. He's aware that, that something something's coming to him and that it's probably somebody from Boulder. So um, we mentioned earlier that Dana dies at Flag's hand, but really Dana kills herself. And I kind of saw this as Dana pulled a Callahan. Mm. <laughs> and there's that scene that Callahan tells us about when he recounts his, his history, like leading him into Culliver and Sturgis, where he's captured by minions of the Crimson King, basically. And he realizes if they hold on to him and get their way, they'll turn him into a vampire. And he realizes the best thing for me right now is to kill myself. And he jumps right. out the window and dies. <laughs> Bye-bye. And then he wakes up in another level of the tower. But that's basically what Dana has done. Dana has only one way out, and that's death. She cannot leave this room alive. She cannot stay in this room and continue to live. So it's through the glass and the glass through her. Yep. Yeah, that, that's another one of those scenes that has always stuck with me of her like throwing her head to the side so that the piece of glass that she had just broke like just slashes her neck and kills her instantly. And it's just, ugh. Yeah. Not great, Bob. Not great. All right. So when right before that scene, before Dana dies, Flag, we see his charming self, right? Like a lot of this section two is like that playful side of Flag, the, 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 the jokester and he says to dana um the floor will be fine we have to talk and talk truth liars sit in chairs so willis chew them 
will sit as though we were friends on opposite sides of a campfire. And that's very similar to the palaver that Roland and the Dark Man have in the Golgotha at the end of The Gunslinger. Uh, just sitting down and talking to each other, two friends. Yeah. Or maybe enemies or opponents. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you can't picture Flag sitting around a campfire talking to somebody and not think of that scene on the Golgotha, right? Yeah, absolutely. And just that, I love the word choice. So Willis chew them, you know? Um, there's a reference how Flag is, again, the, this jovial trickster, much like the character that we spent some time with in The Gunslinger, where he's uh, he's intimidating a character named Eric. And Eric looked at him for a long time, maybe five minutes, and his eyes got bigger and bigger, and he started to drool, and he started to giggle, and he giggled right along with Eric, and that scared me. When Flag laughs, you just get scared. But Eric just kept on giggling. <laughs> so basically, Flag made this Eric guy go nuts by through laughter. It, it just yep. And that that's, that sounds like Flag from the Dark Tower. Right. I'm just gonna totally blow your mind and make you a mm. laughing idiot just yep. because I can. Yeah. All right, lots of thinnies in this section. Good stuff. And also, we get some good yucking it ups, Jay. We sure do. All right, uh, Harold is in a bad way. So he and Nadine are, are crossing through the Rockies. And once they get on the other side, he hits an oil spill. He's a little confused as how there could be an oil spill on this road when there's obviously no cars nearby that have passed by and no oil spilling. and all this stuff, but Flag probably put it there, and he skids off the road, falls down the ravine, and, and breaks his leg. And after a few days, his leg was putrefying. It had a green and gassy smell, and the flesh had swelled tight against his pants, stretching the khaki fabric until it resembled a sausage casing. Ugh. Oh, not, not good. And it gets worse, <laughs> you know? That was the first description of his leg. Later on, he says Flag had reduced him effortlessly to a shivering bag of bones, which is in itself a, a reference. Uh, his, Harold's leg, had swelled up like an inner tube. It smelled like gassy, overripe bananas, and he sat there with buzzards overhead. Ooh. And this is when Harold realizes, you know what? I, I don't got a way out of here. I'm going to commit suicide because I can't deal with this anymore. Uh, but King spares us that imagery and just gives us the imagery of his gross leg. Yeah, thanks, King. <laughs> thanks a lot. Well, King doesn't spare us some imagery that I guess he could have. When Dana is being led to Flag's office, I guess, <laughs> we get this very detailed description of the freeform white desk for a tasteful secretary. And then King goes on to tell us about how the secretary had died, coughing and hacking up great green goblets of phlegm some months ago. <laughs> <laughs> Great green goblets of phlegm. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like a, a quick sort of reminder that this book and this journey that these characters are on began with a plague that killed people in a horrible, disgusting way. Yep. And we haven't spent any time with that in a long time in the book. All of the dead people have been dead for, for months. They're either in forgotten places or they've been cleared away. So... It's like, oh yeah, remember, you know, tube neck? Remember <laughs> constantly stumbling upon rotting corpses? Yeah, well, uh, let me just quickly remind you of that. 
Yep. So my final yucking it up is Nadine thinking something about Flag. She says, he revolts me, but revulsion was only a scaly crust over something worse. A caked and long-hidden lust, an ageless pimple finally brought to a head and about to spew forth some noisome fluid, some sweetness long since curdled. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty yucky. Yep. So, Sean, did we get any listener feedback recently? We did. Oh, cool. And we got it from overseas, across the pond, as they like to say, Jay. Joe Banyard titles his review, Tee hee hee, tee hee hee hee. <laughs> Joe's my new favorite listener just for uh, that. Absolutely. Well, wait till you hear his review, Jay. Some people may think having four Stephen King podcasts in your rotation is excessive. Well, I agree. There should only be one, but that's beside the point, Joe. But yes, okay, you can listen to three others. But I've been working my way through his bibliography since 2017, and I can't get enough of podcasts to discuss his books. I came across this podcast whilst reading the Dark Tower series and loved listening along to Jay and Sean while reading the books. I felt like I was part of a book club. That's exactly what we were hoping for. Excellent. Thank you, Joe. Yes. Um, He goes on to say that, I stupidly removed the podcast once they finished the Dark Tower series as I thought it was over and was surprised when I recently clicked on the podcast and found they are now tackling more of his books. I am so glad I did as they've been covering some of my favorite books, including Eyes of the Dragon, Salem's Lot, and currently The Stand. I'm excited to see what they decide to visit next. So are we. Uh, (laughs) So are we. Keep up the great work, guys. I'm loving it. Joe in Forest of Dean, UK, and I looked at some pictures of Forest of Dean. Mm-hmm. Jay, it looks like a wonderful place. Like, it's sort of like how I imagine uh, Hobbit Town to be. Like a truly magical place. Yeah, fields and green and woods and forests. I'm like, oh yeah, that's what places on this earth look like. I'd love to visit there someday. Joe, that was a fantastic review, and thank you so much. And hopefully, uh, others in the UK read your review and and give us a listen. Yes, thanks, Joe. Tee-hee-hee-hee. <laughs> All right. So if you want to support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episode, you can visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower and become a patron. We are always appreciative of our patrons. And Jay, it's my understanding that we might have a new patron. Yes, we just got a new patron at the gunslinger level who goes by the name of Stormtheus. Thank you, Stormtheus, for being a patron. Yeah, and hope you enjoy the bonus podcasts and our Patreon content, and we'd love to have others aboard as well. Sean, I think it might be time for some fun stuff. (laughs) Yeah, in addition to having a lot of Dark Tower thinnies, we also had a lot of fun stuff. My first one is that a character wonders if Flag could talk to the animals like a satanic Dr. Doolittle. (laughs) The... uh, Dr. Doolittle with Rex Harrison was a movie I watched a ton in my youth on VHS, and I would love to have seen a remake with Flag as a satanic Dr. Doolittle. That'd be some good stuff. Uh, One of the guys that is keeping an eye out for and eventually kills the judge is reading comic books to pass the time. And at one point, he's reading a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic and seems to not like it at all. And he threw Raphael, Donatello, and their numbfuck buddies across the store. And the comic book they inhabited fluttered down in a tent shape on top of a cash register. And he thought that things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles made you believe the world was maybe 
better off being destroyed. Ooh. Yeah. Come on, man. Like, (laughs) Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is an awesome comic. I'm a huge fan of the original series. Those are great independent comics. Yep. This is a change from the original stand in which the comic book that this character was reading was a Howard the Duck comic. But I'm sure he had the same thoughts about it being trash and, and threw it away. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure King just changed the name of the comic. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting change is that the next comic he picks up after the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a Batman comic. And he says something along the lines of like, oh, Batman, there's a hero you could get behind. But in the original, it was Superman. Um, mm. And again, timing wise, the first version of the stand came out right around the time that Superman the movie came out. This version of the stand came out shortly after the Michael Keaton Tim Burton Batman came out. So yeah, and that was huge. That like changed what Batman meant to the world. Oh yeah, totally. So I'm sure that King was totally unaware of this being important. But one of those characters hunting the judge um, is Dave Roberts, which seems like just a regular normal name. But Dave Roberts was an important part of the Red Sox first World Series in over a hundred years when he stole a base against the Yankees leading to that three to one comeback and then having the Red Sox go on. So I'm sure nowadays that Dave Roberts holds a special place in Stephen King's heart as a important Red Sox and as such a big baseball and Red Sox fan as he is. Do I share your knowledge of baseball with us, Jay? And how much you think about the Red Sox and stuff? I already did. So here's one of my uh, nitpicks. The judge very specifically left Boulder driving a Land Rover. It was commented on by multiple characters, how it was a brand new Land Rover. And then by the time we catch up to him on his own and about to be caught and killed, he's driving an international scout. Hmm. And Flag has put out the word to his guys, like, he's driving a scout. It's painted in these colors. Look for it. Stop it. I'm just curious. I'm sure this is just an editorial flub. I don't know. Or it could just be like King using Land Rover and Scout as like sort of generic terms of just like rugged four by fours that can drive anywhere. Right. Um, There's a reason why people who drive across the continent of Africa drive one or the other of those vehicles. (laughs) They really can just drive anywhere. But the judge was like, yeah, I'm in my new Land Rover. And then later he thanks God for the Scout. Yeah, because it's gotten him through a lot of things and, uh, you know, just a little flub. Yeah, it happens. So I know that there is a huge fandom around Jamie Sheridan as Flag. Like people really think like he really nailed that characterization in the Stan miniseries, right? I think that's generally believed upon that Jamie Sheridan did a good job. Okay. I I, I haven't heard one way or the other, honestly. People, I think, liked his sort of over-the-top characterization. I think King's even commented that he thought Jamie Sheridan was good. But I wonder if maybe there was a better choice. And that's because in the scene with Dana, Flag acts almost like Columbo. He starts to hypnotize her. He tells her all these these things. And he's about to let her go, right? Like, he sets it up like, oh, you can go. Everything will be fine. And as Dana's walking towards the door, Flag as Columbo says, there, there's one more thing, one very minor thing. And I'm thinking, man, if only Peter Falk played Flag, that would be fantastic. One more thing, Dana. Just one more very minor thing. That would be pretty great. It would be fun stuff for sure. I got a kick out of the uh, additional sweet, sweet Poe references. (laughs) And this happened in my favorite scene when the crow 
tapping on the pane with his beak, tapping as he had tapped before. Yeah, that's that's a nice little reference. Yeah, I just get little little squee moments when King does that. I'm just waiting for him to mention the bust of Palace, and I, I will feel complete. There you go. Um, the Dana scene's good. Like, there's a lot of stuff happening there. One more is that we've been told about this knife, the spring-loaded knife that she has attached to her wrist, and she has to go through all this trouble to fake being sick so that she can hurry up and put it on because she's naked when they find her and accuse her of being a traitor. But she gets it, and we're supposed to think, all right, Dana's got a thing here. Like, mm-hmm. just like the judge had a chance to kill the crow but failed, Dana's got a much better plan, and she's going to be able to do it. She's going to get close. And right when she spring loads her knife into her hand, it turns into a banana, complete with the Chiquita sticker on it. We're like, oh, Flag has this awesome power. He could transmutate things. And he knew about it all the time. And Dana can't get away with it. But I love the the little detail. Not only did he turn it into a banana, but it had a Chiquita sticker on it. Sean, that's what is known as product placement. Oh, product placement. Yes. You didn't know that King got a $10 million check from Chiquita to write this book. Yeah, he totally needed that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it crossed my mind that this was sort of an illusion spell or something that the flag did, that she was still holding a knife, but it just looked like a banana. Oh. I mean, had I been in her position and holding a banana when I wanted to be holding a knife, the smart move would have been stab him with the banana. Oh, like maybe it's just a glamour and it's still a knife and she could still do damage. Right. Just get him with the banana. Yeah, but what if it wasn't? Like, and then she just hit him with like a mushy banana and then he's got banana all over himself. Yes, and that would be a tragedy. <laughs> then he's got to change his jean jacket, wash it off. Uh, somebody in Vegas is talking about how there are three old ladies, the weird sisters, everyone called them, who kept ah. chickens on the outskirts of town. And that's where everybody got all the eggs that they ate. Yep. That, of course, made me think of the three witches in Clash of the Titans. Yeah, I would have said the three weird sisters from Macbeth, but I'll allow it. No, no, it's Clash of the Titans with their magic eye. A titan against a titan! (laughs) I guess in the history of the world, the events of Clash of the Titans did happen before the events of Macbeth. So you're probably right that that was the first instance of it. Yes. Uh, Flag's laugh is described as a titter. The sound of scampering light-footed rats behind an old wall, which reminds me of so many different things, right? Like a titter, tee-hee-hee-hee, mm-hmm. uh, light-footed rats behind an old wall, like in 1922, which was covered in one of our patron episodes. Uh, yeah, so uh, nice little touch there. The final thing I have for fun stuff is a, a line I really liked, but his eyes were not gentle at all. They gave lie to the idea that this man felt anything gentle. In them, he saw a black glee that danced endlessly like the legs of a man fresh through the trap door in a gibbet platform. Yeah, that is a good line. Which conjures many images in my mind. The, the hanged man makes me think of the flashback in The Gunslinger when Roland and Cuthbert went to throw breadcrumbs under the feet of the hanged man. Yep. This also reminds me of our earlier conversation about how Flag is anything but gentle. If he had just had just that one bit of gentleness for Nadine, things would have gone very differently for Flag. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, we're getting to that point of the book where lots of things are happening quick. We lost two main characters, Harold and Nadine, and two relatively important characters in The Judge and Dana. Like Things are moving fast. We've only got a little bit more to go in this book. And that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. 
Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand, book three, chapter 68 through 73. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. My voice is silky smooth. It's time to start the show. My voice is my instrument. My voice is my instrument. But before she is forced to spill who the third... (laughs) Who writes this shit?